Are you ready for God to work? I am so ready for God to work. Have you been praying for God to work? Maybe there's a specific way you've been asking God to work. Maybe you've been saying, Lord, pour out your spirit in these last days. You've promised in Joel that you'd pour out your spirit. All right, Lord. I want these young people to be filled with the Spirit. I want the convalescent homes on fire for Jesus and everything in between. Maybe that has been your prayer for God to work in a general way. But maybe you are praying for a specific person. Is there a specific person on your prayer hit list? I know I've got a couple specifics. Lord, I want them saved. Lord, I want you to do a work. Or maybe, have you been praying for God to work in a specific situation? Have you been lifting it up and saying, oh, God, work? Okay, before we go further, let's just pray about those situations. If that's you, you've got a specific person, a specific way, or a specific um, general way that you want God to work, let's just pray right now. And you can lift up your hands. Lord, we're going to give you this person, this situation, And Lord, our general desire for you to come and work in our world, in our community, right now, Lord, we need you to work. So Lord, we're entrusting that situation, that person, and Lord, just a great work to come into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. But I have found that when God wants to work, he works on two levels. First of all, he's working with the people that he's going to work on, or he's working already in that situation doing something. He prepares those he's about to work on. There's a sudden conviction of sin. You know, uh, I've talked to more people who, before they got saved, having never felt bad about anything, all of a sudden they began to feel bad about the things they were doing. That was the case with Brian before he got saved. He had been just a partier, a surfer, never felt bad about things he did. And all of a sudden, he's telling his friends, I can't drink anymore. I just don't feel good about it. I'm not, I'm not doing you know, drugs anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to party. He just all of a sudden started to feel bad about these things that he never had any sense of conviction over before because God was about to save him. But I've also found that people will say, oh, I've had a curiosity about God. I've just been thinking about God all the time lately. Have you ever uh, begun to share with someone? They said, I've been curious about God lately. I've just been thinking about him all the time. Or maybe they say, oh, I've had this spiritual hunger. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm reading a book on, you know, the um, Buddha. And you're like, no, 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 no. That just shows you have a spiritual hunger. But that's something better than Buddha. I've got that beautiful belief that baffles Buddhists down in my heart. Or you find that people have a dissatisfaction with the status quo. All of a sudden, there's this restlessness in their life, and they're just like, I am... I'm not, I'm not content anymore. Something just seems wrong. God begins to open their eyes and ears to things they have never before considered. People begin to talk to them about God. I have found that they'll say, you know, my aunt was just talking to me about God, or my sister was just talking about, or I overheard a conversation the other day, or I read this thing that really touched me. That's how God begins to work. On the vessels. In Amos 3 7, 
The Bible says that surely the Lord does nothing unless he reveals his secret to the his servants, the prophets. So not only does God begin to do a work on those that he's going to really do a work on, but he also works on the vessel that he's about to use for his purposes. God prepares the vessel. And the first thing that he begins to do is he works on the vessel's area of comfort. I want to say this. Ministry is messy. It's never a clean work, and you're going to get dirty at times when you are. You know, Jude says, save some, even hating the garments that are touched by the sin. Sometimes ministry can be messy. I remember one time Brian getting an emergency call when we were in Vista, and there was a young man, and he was strung out. I can't remember. I think it was PCP. And Brian and Joey Brand and a couple other pastors, they ended up following this guy all over Escondido, protecting him from himself and protecting others from this man until finally the, the drug had run out of his system. And I mean, Brian was gone for hours. At one time, the police tried to arrest this guy, and he threw off everybody, all the policemen that were on him. You know, Brian and Joey were just standing back praying. But it can be messy at times, and it requires sacrifice. Ministry, being used by God, it's always going to require sacrifice. It requires lots of changes, changes of routines and things we are used to. Jesus said in Luke 5.39, no one wants the new wine at first. They say the old is better. But every new work requires new wineskins and new wine. It's uncomfortable because things are no longer our way, but God's way. We are such creatures of habit. I will admit that. I love my routine. And it's very hard for me to have my routine upset. Right now, I am babysitting my daughter's cat who thinks she's supposed to share my tea and sit on my Bible while I'm doing my devotions. She is not part of my routine. I am such a creature of habit. And God loves to play with my routine. Faith is never comfortable. And as George Mueller said, you will never learn faith in comfortable circumstances. God works on our prejudices and our fears. Things we distrust, things we dislike. A few weeks ago, I was out um, at dinner with Brian, and we were sitting outside. And I have to say, and you know, forgive me if, if you have this habit, I hate smoking. I hate smoke. I hate secondhand smoke. I hate the smell of it. I hate the way it overwhelms. I hate the way my, I smell like smoke. I don't even like campfires because I hate smoke so bad. And I saw this girl, and she's smoking. And you know, it begins to flavor your food. And I just kind of was like, a smoker. And I heard the girl say, I just got a new sponsor. 
oh my goodness, I wanted to push back my chair, run to her and go, you're doing a great thing. This is so good. Yay, yay, yay. You're off of drugs and alcohol. I'm so proud of you. You had changed my whole perspective. It's like, have all the cigarettes you want. Just don't do the drugs and alcohol. You know, I just, God is always doing that to me. Cheryl, do not be prejudiced. I used to, you know, when we were in, in England, times I would be walking into service, all these new believers in England, I'm walking through a sea of smoke going, hey, brother, so-and-so and sister, so-and-so, good to have you at church. Because, you know, Europeans don't feel the same way about smoke that people like me do. But God works on things that we're afraid of, does he not? Yo, Lord, I'm afraid of that thing. Yep, that's why you're going to walk through it. Things we avoid, God brings right to our doorstep. Next, God works on our pride when he wants to do a work in us, when he wants to use us for his glory. The vestiges of our self-righteousness, the things that make us think we are just a little superior to anybody else, he takes away. The areas we take our pride in or feel secure about in ourselves, he removes. The things we pride ourselves in never having done, he will make us do. Or we will find ourselves doing because he's going to work on the area of our pride. Finally, he works on our disobedience, doesn't he? Those areas, and we've all had areas, we are honest in here, right? Those areas where we have all said, not so Lord, I don't think there's one woman in this room that hasn't at some time uttered those words, not so, Lord. There are times in all of our lives where we have chosen our ways rather than God's because, honestly, God's way looked scary and my way looked safe. There are areas that we have stopped short of following Jesus because of the path that he was taking All of us have areas that God wants to go so much deeper in. And we have said, not so, Lord. These are the places where he's waiting for us to be obedient. As it says in Isaiah 30, 18, God waits for us that he might be gracious. What a great Lord we have. That he doesn't say, not so, Lord. Okay, let me go to choice number two. He's like, I'll wait. I'll wait. Because I want to do work through you. Places where we have given in to our fears rather than the road of faith. Though God could do his work without us, he could use angels, he could use donkeys. He chooses to use men and women to accomplish his work. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, that God has chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to share the gospel. He allows us to be partakers in his work. He allows us to see him work, that we might have our faith increased, that he might give us revelation, that we might have reward in heaven, and that we might enter into the joy of our Lord. I was reading in Luke chapter 15 where it says that the angels in heaven get so excited about one sinner that repents. And God wants to bring us into that joy, the joy of heaven. So he's going to work on these areas of our lives. 
Before the Jesus movement, God had a lot of preparation to do. And we talk about the Jesus people movement in the 60s and 70s. But God had to prepare a generation. You've got all these young people that otherwise they would have just gone on and become probably pretty strong atheists. That's where the 50s were going. Remember, prayer was taken out of school. And people were feeling really good about their careers. And materialism was getting a grip in the United States. But all of a sudden, there was a generation that became discontent with the status quo. There was a generation that went in search of spiritual meaning. There was a sense of profound emptiness and a sense of conviction. But then God began to prepare the church for what he was going to do. And there had to be a willingness in the church to go beyond tradition. There had to be a willingness in the church to listen to a generation. There had to be a willingness in the church to change the music, to maybe not use the organ as often as they had been. There had to be a willingness in the church to break their prejudices against hippies and the youth and young people. There had to be a willingness in the church to lose the pride of suits, hymns, and their moralistic living. There had to be a willingness in the church to obey God in whatever he directed. I remember when my dad first rented a hippie house. You, know, you all saw Chuck as being so conservative. I saw the wild one. <laughs> we used to go visit those hippie houses, these communes. And Dad would sit down and eat the food. And I was like, Dad, do we know where this food came from? <laughs> He'd say, Cheryl, what God has cleansed, don't call common. Eat up. idea for these hippie houses. Where do we put these kids and people that want to walk with Jesus? How do we get them off of drugs? How do we give them security? How do we help them? And all over Costa Mesa were these hippie houses where these young people lived and made leather belts and purses that my mom carried with such joy. There were rock bands on stage, guitars and drums. You see, you don't understand how different this was. How many traditions he was breaking when he did this. There were slacks at church for women. You don't know, I was never, ever, ever allowed to wear slacks at church until I was 10 years old. It just was not done. I remember my mom just wearing them for the first time, just going, I know I'm wearing slacks. I know I'm wearing slacks. I think that was the first thing she said to anybody who said, hi, Kay, I know I'm wearing slacks. Not even realizing that they already were wearing jeans. I remember my Aunt Isi and my Mary Jane coming out and going, oh, my Slacks at church. And then two weeks later, my Aunt Isi calling my mom and saying, Kay, guess what? 
Mary Jane and I went out and bought some slacks. And we're going to wear them to church. During this time, there were two prominent pastors that asked my dad to be on a radio program with them. Dad was so excited. He thought this was going to be absolutely wonderful as he began to talk about what God was doing. And you know what these pastors did? They called him a heretic. They excoriated him over at the radio station. I remember walking in, and my mom was sobbing her eyes out as she listened to what her husband had to go through. But you know what? God worked, didn't he? The result was a generation was saved, that the Holy Spirit fell upon young people and old people and everything in between. The result was miracles. People were delivered from drugs, delivered from demons, delivered from alcohol and every other vice. The result was salvation. The result was pastors raised up. I remember, you know, the book that we have about the pastors. A friend of mine who's highly educated said, are there any highly educated people in here? Were they all drug addicts? Is that a prerequisite to being a Calvary pastor? The result was incredible anointing of the Holy Spirit. And men, godly men, were raised up of that generation. That is what God does when he wants to do a work. Now, do you really want God to do a work? Are you ready for God to do a work? But when you find out the cost of God doing a work, are you ready to go, wait a second? Maybe not. There's a price. There's a price. And that price is going to be being uncomfortable. That price is going to be losing your prejudices. It's going to be humiliation where there was pride. And it is going to be whatever the final point was. (laughs) That's it, Zach. No, but that is a good point, too. God wanted to do work among the Gentiles, and God began by preparing a certain Gentile, Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. He's over an Italian regiment, which means he's over six different centurions. So he's over 600 men, and then if you include his own, that's 700 men. He's a man of great influence. He has many friends. He's very important in Caesarea. But God had already moved in his heart. We find that God was already preparing him. He was on a quest for God. He had begun to pray and seek God. He was moved to consider the poor. He gave alms to the Jewish people, and he was respectful. There was already something going on in Cornelius. And then what does God do? He gives him a vision. An angel comes and speaks to him, and he informs Cornelius that God is aware of him that God has been watching and God has been listening. And a memorial has come up before God, or God has seen his offering and God has accepted it. But God has specific instructions for Cornelius. It's not, I have a son, it's Jesus. How easily this angel could have spelled out the whole gospel message that Cornelius could have been saved. But you know what? God wants to create a body, doesn't he? He wants to take down that middle wall of division between the Jews and the Gentiles. He wants to do something greater, and he's going to use Simon Peter for this work. 
So the specific instructions follow. He's to send men to Joppa and ask for Simon. I mean, God's even giving the name. But he's called Peter. Don't you love that? God includes the nickname as well as the real name. He is lodging with a tanner named Simon. More instructions. And this house is by the sea. This is like a full GPS from the angel. And Peter will tell you what you must do. So Cornelius acts immediately. He calls two of his servants and a devout soldier. He explains all he has seen and heard, and he sends them to Joppa. But meanwhile, what is God doing? He's preparing the vessel, isn't he? And the first thing that God does is he begins to make Peter uncomfortable. Peter's on this rooftop. He's hungry. Is that not the perfect time to get a man's attention? He's waiting for dinner. I have to say this. This is a bad story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. It's not in my notes. One time, Brian and I, um, it was my birthday, and Brian had made all these plans for him and I to celebrate my birthday, but I made other plans. Now, I want you to know that the plans I made turned out really bad, really miserable. This is what happens whenever I plan my own birthday. But it was really bad. And so I had been gone all day, and now I was coming home. Uh, Brian and I had been married about five years by this time. And I'm coming, I'm coming home. It's been a really bad day, and he's not at the house, and it's my birthday. Not only that, I'm locked out of the house. So I have an electric garage door, and I'm able to pry it enough that I can slide underneath it and get grease all over my birthday outfit, get in, to use the telephone column, and then I had to let my children in. One was a baby, and one was two. So I get my children in. Then I go call Brian, where are you? And he said, you know, you've ruined your birthday for me. Like, oh, for you, have I ruined my birthday? So he comes home, and I start making tacos. He is so grumpy. And I'm making my own tacos for my birthday because that's what I wanted. And all of a sudden, I got really mad. He's like, it's my birthday, it's been a lousy day, and he has no right to be a grump on my birthday. So I said to him, I said, see this meat? Goodbye, tacos! And I started to take it over and throw it down the sink. Oh my goodness, that man was on his knees repenting for that attitude. Please, don't throw away the taco meat. I know I haven't treated you right, but I have birthday plans. I'm so sorry. Please, save the tacos, save the tacos. All this to say that when a man is hungry, you can really get their attention. That's my whole point. So Peter's hungry. He's on the rooftop. He's waiting for dinner, and he's praying. It's the right occupation, the right activity to receive something from God. You want to hear from God? You want to get directives from God? You've got to pray. In all thy ways, acknowledge him. You've got to pray. God directs us while we pray. As we go through this book of Acts, you're going to find over and over again the phrase, while they prayed. While they prayed. When they prayed. It is during prayer that God directs us. Remember, Cornelius was praying at the ninth hour. Peter falls into a divine trance, and God sends him a vision. Now, his vision's not an angel, is it? It's not as cool. This is an uncomfortable vision for Peter. 
Peter's already hungry, desperately hungry. And here comes the sheet from heaven. And it's got every type of unclean animal. It's got scavenger birds. It's got owls and kites. It's got skunks and reptiles. And he probably didn't even know what a skunk was because they're North American. But nevertheless, they're on there. (laughs) It's got rats. It's got every type of creeping, gross thing. Not only are these animals that Peter never ate, these are animals that Peter, as a good Jewish boy, stayed away from, kept a distance from, and avoided at all cost. But now, God commands Peter, kill and eat. Now, if it's not bad enough to see these unclean animals, think about killing an unclean animal. Think about the blood and the, uh, the whole procedure of killing this, roasting it, and eating Talk about uncomfortable, something he's never done in his life. Talk about a new outlook or a new type of food. I don't know about you, but I'm uncomfortable with new food. And here's Peter with all this unclean way, uh, new unclean animals. Now God deals with Peter's prejudice. Peter is against all these animals, (laughs) He does not like these animals. They're all forbidden by kosher law. God speaks to him and says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. God is saying, if I pronounce something or someone clean, you must not regard, revere, or uh, you must regard, revere, and respect whatever I call clean. You cannot feel above any of these animals on the sheet like you're better. When God is saying kill and eat, he is directing Peter to ingest and partake of these animals. Eating was very significant in the Jewish culture because it signified becoming one with that food, one with that animal. That's why the priests were to partake of the sacrifice, and the people that brought the sacrifice were to partake of it. They were becoming one. They are saying, this sacrifice is me. This is my penalty for the sins. So when Peter is told to kill and eat, eat, to ingest, to partake, to become one with, God is calling him to become one with what is unclean, knowing that it's been cleansed by God. Now God is going to deal with Peter's pride. Peter might have had his blaring faults, but this Jewish boy had never eaten anything unclean in his life. Isn't that funny, those areas that we take pride in? I might have done this and this and this, but I never. We do that, don't we? We all have those little vestiges of pride. And here's Peter. He might have gathered grain on the Sabbath, Matthew 12.1. He might have been hesitant to obey Jesus' command, Luke 5.5. He might have rebuked Jesus and been an agent of the devil, Matthew 16.21-23. He might have falsely boasted that he was incapable of denying Jesus, Matthew 26. He might have fallen asleep on the job at Gethsemane, Matthew 26. He might have chopped off the high servant's ear, He might have forsaken Jesus in the garden. He might have denied Jesus three times, but he never had eaten anything unclean. (laughs) 
Perhaps Peter held this as his last vestige of self-respect. Although he had totally blown it in just about every other area of his life, he never had partaken of that which is unclean. But now God is commanding him to abandon his last vestige of pride. You know, those vestiges of pride, God chose me because, anything after because is invalid. You have to just stop. God chose me because he's good. God chose me because he is God, not because of anything that I have done. As Paul said, it's not by any works of righteousness that I have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved me. It's all about God. Now, God is going to work on Peter's disobedience. Remember how he answered? Not so, Lord. My dad used to say that this is a contradictory phrase. If Jesus is Lord, master, and commander, the answer must always be, yes, sir. Yes, master, your will be done. Now, Peter still thinks that when it comes to Peter, he knows what is best. So this vision is repeated three times. No doubt to remind Peter of other times, other times when he thought Peter knew best. Maybe to remind Peter of his previous disobedience, a time when he was protecting his own self-interest, that time when he denied Jesus. Whenever we are protecting our own self-interest, our words are going to be, not so, Lord. Maybe he's reminding him of his restoration by Jesus. Do you love me more than these? Peter, are you willing to do anything for me? Anything for me? Because obedience is the ultimate sign of love. So he's going to work on Peter's disobedience. Once God has prepared the work and the vessel, it's time to bring them both to bed together. As Peter wonders about the full implications of this vision, men arrive from Cornelius' house and ask for him by name. And the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. I love this scripture in Isaiah 50.10. It says, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys his servant? If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. There are times that God says, just take that next step. What I am doing, you will not understand now, but you will understand later. Go doubting nothing. That's part of our walk, and that's uncomfortable, is it not? We're women. We love to know where we're going, how long it's going to take to get there, and what we're going to need on the way and once we're there. That's who we are. We prepare. We have purses. Men have wallets. Some of you have bags. They can't even qualify as purses. They're bags. And some of you have two things, always, a bag and a purse. You are ready. But there are times that God says, go ahead, just 
go ahead without knowing what you're going to need. Go ahead. God is telling Peter, I'm behind all of this. Just go. Don't give in to fear and doubt. And that's how it is with God's work. We simply must go. We simply must plunge into it. We must refuse to give in to fear and doubt. We must refuse to be, here it is, overly analytical. Some of you are so convicted. Trying to figure out the next move. Well, why did they do that? And how should I respond to that? We must recognize God's hand in it and must allow God to do all the guidance. So Peter introduces himself to the men. He finds out about Cornelius and the vision of Cornelius. He finds out the specifics of how Cornelius was instructed to sin for him. And Peter invites them to stay overnight. Oh my goodness, here's the first broken prejudice of this Jewish man inviting Gentiles to come in and stay at his house. The next day, Peter goes with these Gentiles to Caesarea, to a Roman colony. And Cornelius has invited even more Gentiles into his Gentile house, his Gentile family, to hear Peter. Not only is Cornelius prepared, he has prepared his entire house. And Peter goes into Cornelius' house, and Cornelius immediately bows and starts to worship Peter. And Peter stops him and points out their commonality. They are both equals. They are equals. They are both men. I myself am also a man. Peter is saying, I'm on your level. I am not superior to you. Without that vision, Peter might have felt superior because he was a Jew, a disciple of Jesus, a witness of the gospel. But now that the Lord has said, what I have cleansed thou must not call common, Peter has a whole new outlook. Peter does admit his discomfort with being in a Gentile house. I love that. I'm not real comfortable with what God's doing, but I'm going with the program. I think it's all right to say that. When I went to England, I didn't want to think too much about going to England because I was so afraid at some point I would ruin the whole thing God wanted to do. You know, we are dealing with Cheryl. I loved my house. I loved the school my children were at. Again, I loved my routines. I loved driving a car on the right side of the road. I loved sunny days. Loved the sun. And, and God's calling us to England, and I was so afraid. And when I got to England, I did tell the people, I'm not real comfortable with this. I, I do miss my mom. I do miss my dad. I do miss my family. But I'm here. It's all right to express some discomfort. God doesn't say, you know, Peter, if you're going to talk like that, I'll get Paul. He's saved. I'm going to bring him in. No. He's going to keep working with vessel. Isn't that so great? Again, God waits with us that he might be gracious. He waits for us. He's going to work with us. But Peter says, but I know this. Here he is. I know that God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. He's already saying, I'm going to go into your house because God has shown me that he does not consider you common or unclean, and I'm not allowed to either. After Cornelius explains the vision God gave him, Peter realizes, I love this, in truth I perceive 
that God shows no partiality. Don't you see this dawning on Peter? So this is what you're up to, God. This is what you're showing me. This is what the vision meant. This is what you're doing. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. That God is going to bring all nations to himself. Then Peter goes forward to preach a very simple five-point sermon. I love this five-point sermon because you know what? The message of the gospel has the power. Sometimes we think we have to be so eloquent that we have to say it so right. I remember Sharon Reese saying when Raul first got saved, he had it all wrong and people still got saved (laughs) and transformed. It's the gospel itself. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, it's the gospel that contains the power. It's the gospel that's the seed that gives birth to the tree of faith. It is the gospel. So Peter's first point, Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord of Gentiles and he's Lord of Jews. He's Lord of all. Second point is the testimony of Jesus. He's going to tell them about Jesus, but he says this, you already know. These things were not done in secret, the things that happened to Jesus. Remember, multitudes saw Jesus. Multitudes were healed by Jesus. The multitudes talked about Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, the disciples said to Jesus, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? I mean, you must be from some other country because everybody in this whole area knows the things that went on with Jesus. Later, when Paul appears before Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he says to Agrippa, I know you know about Jesus. I know you know all these things that went down in Israel. These were known, these things about Jesus. It was not a secret. But Peter says Jesus was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit and power, that he went about doing good, that he healed all who were oppressed by the devil, and that God was with him. Point three, that Jesus died on a cross, rose again, and is now exalted by God to be the judge of all men, living and dead. You see, this gospel rings true in every heart by the Holy Spirit. God keeps it simple so every man, woman, and child can be saved so that there are no exemptions. It is simple, but the Holy Spirit comes and bears witness. I remember sharing with a girl one time, and I was sharing with her about the end-time scenario, and I saw this look cross over her face. I went for it. I said to her, and you know the things I'm saying are true. And she's like, she wasn't a Christian. She's shaking her head. I said, because the Holy Spirit right now is bearing witness to the truth of these things in your heart, and you can feel it. The gospel is powerful. It is the profound truth that radiates in the heart of every man. Every man will stand before Jesus. We're told in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. 
Men know they're going to be judged. They feel it. They might push the limits, but they're waiting for the rock to fall. There is that sense of conviction in every man. The Holy Spirit brings this sense of conviction. And the gospel, the gospel and the Holy Spirit work in cooperation with each other. Point four, Peter says, we are eyewitnesses to these things. We saw, we know. As you're giving your five-point sermon, you're going to say, and I know it's true because I've received Jesus Christ in my heart. I'm an eyewitness to these things. God has transformed and changed my life. Peter says, we are witnesses to all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Witnesses chosen by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The final point Peter makes is Jesus is the Messiah who fulfilled all the scriptures. This is kind of your apologetic punch where you show the scriptures and how Jesus fulfilled everything that was written about his first coming, Isaiah 53. And Peter says this, All the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. Peter says this is just the promise of scripture and the prophets of salvation in Jesus' name. Paul later, again when he's appearing before um, Festus and those have come up from Jerusalem, he says, I am only affirming what the prophets and patriarchs believed, the promise of God. That's why I'm standing here. Everything in the Old Testament has been and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus represents, again, as we've said before, his person, his accomplishments, his authority. But what did God do? Here's this simple message, and all of a sudden we're told that the Holy Spirit falls upon these Gentiles. I love that phrase. He fell upon them. It had weight. It had substance. And they began to speak in other tongues and magnify the name of God. To magnify the name of God. When you look under a magnifying glass, what are you doing? You're making something bigger so you can see all the intricacies and beauty. I mean, without a microscope, you would never know what is going on in a cell. You would never know about the cytoplasm and the mitochondria. You would never know all the functions of a cell. But you bring it out, or the DNA or the you know, ribosomes, you bring it out, and the more you magnify it, the more complex it gets. There's no such thing as a simple cell. Amazing. It's the 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 more, the more, the deeper you get, the more intricate and complex. The further out you go in the universe, the more intricate and complex. It doesn't matter which way you go, our God is amazing. And that's what they begin to do. They begin to magnify and look at God and begin to speak out the glory of God. The things that God is. This is what happens under the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
We magnify God. We begin to talk about the glory of God, the beauty of God, the love and compassion and faithfulness of God. Paul tells us that those who prophesy edify. Those who prophesy comfort. When a prophecy makes you feel like, it's not God. The Holy Spirit magnifies the Lord. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He magnifies. He draws you to God like a magnet. You want to run into God because he's so big, so glorious, so beautiful, so compassionate, so faithful. And what happened? They received the word. As they listened to Peter, they were, I believe. And the minute they believed, the Holy Spirit bore witness to the authentic work that was going on in their hearts by the promise of the Father upon these men. I believe this wasn't just for Cornelius and his household. This was for Peter and for those who were with Peter who had not been prepared for what happened. They didn't get the vision. They hadn't heard the word. And they're looking going, what? Gentiles can be saved? This was astounding to them. That these Gentiles did not have to proselyze to Judaism, go under the law. Then meet Jesus. No. That these uncircumcised men, just as they were, God was accepting them. Just as they were. He was taking them clean and immediately making them clean. And God had to show the authenticity by saying exactly what happened to you when you knew that the Holy Spirit was upon you. I'm going to do for them. Because with God, there is no partiality. Because it's all about Jesus. God wanted these men to know it's all about Jesus. It's not about the law. It's not about works of righteousness. It's not about where I've lived. It's not about the foods I haven't eaten. It's all about Jesus. We, you, all of us today, you know what we have right now? We have the shield, the breastplate of righteousness. We have the shield of faith. We have the breastplate of righteousness. You want that breastplate of righteousness? You are righteous by Jesus Christ. You are clean by Jesus Christ. You are qualified, according to Colossians chapter 1, by Jesus Christ. Not one of you who has believed in Jesus Christ is unclean or withheld the blessings or promises of God. They are all yours because of Jesus. Because you know what I know right now? I know the devil is lying to you and saying, you're not totally clean. You're not qualified. He's a liar. Jesus tells us he's a liar. You have been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are qualified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You wear his breastplate of righteousness so that anybody who touches you has to go through the righteousness of Jesus Christ to get to your heart. You are covered. All your vital organs are covered, not by what you have done, but what Jesus Christ has done for you by Jesus Christ's righteousness. You see, the expectation of these Gentiles was that, again, that these men were going to have to proselytize in baptism to Judaism, go under the law, become circumcised. But God 
foregoes all this and immediately forgives their sins, immediately transforms them, makes them clean, makes them uncommon, and the soul felt its worth. Your soul has worth. Your soul is so precious to God. Peter's, Peter just wants to show that this is truly a work of God. Let's validate it. Let, let's show that we want to authenticate and say, yes, this is God. Let's have a baptism. Let's baptize these men into the name of Jesus to show that we are all one in Christ with them. Again, it's not an identification with Judaism, not an identification with the law, but a full identification with Jesus. Then Peter stays in this Gentile house for many days, no doubt establishing Cornelius in the house and the faith. Don't you know that they're going to tell us more about Jesus? Tell us about your experience with Jesus. Tell us everything about Jesus. This same God who works extraordinarily in the lives of men and women wants to do a work in our day. I definitely believe that we are in the last days, and according to the prophet Joel, we should be expecting God to work in extraordinary ways among our old men and our old women, among our young women and young men and everything in between. God wants to do work, and he wants to use all of us. When we went to England, I received a strong word from the Lord, and the word of the Lord to me was, Cheryl, you are not going to do a work for me. I'm going to do a work through you. I'm doing the work, and you get to be a part of it. God wants to do a work in our day, and he wants to call us in to this work that he is going to do. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to get uncomfortable there's going to be a breakdown of all our prejudices. There's going to be a ratification of our pride. I remember going to England. Everything I prided myself in was shattered before God could use me. I used to pride myself in being a great Sunday school teacher. It, was, it actually got traumatic in the Sunday school class. I told you this before. They stole Jesus. Who steals your flannel graph Jesus? And I told you this, I had to buy Jesus back for a pound. I kid you not. I, I, I was saying to Brian, don't make me go in. Don't make me go back in with those children. I know that sounds terrible, but it's true. God broke me. God totally broke me and said, do you want to do it my way? Yes. But if you want to deliver me, that would be even better. No, he threw me back into that classroom in the power of the Holy Spirit, but he shattered my ways of doing things and what I had done before. He shattered my mothering. My children, now that I was homeschooling, decided to take that opportunity to tell me all the ways I needed to grow in the Lord. I kid you not, they had more than one intervention. I was shattered as a wife. I remember saying to Brian, you know I love you, right? And he said, you do? I was shattered. I was away from Calvary Chapel. I was away from my mom and dad. I got two mean letters from America written in pencil. 
I don't know why that pencil was important. I guess because they were leaded. I could go on. God shattered me. And you know what I realized? God always breaks the vessel he's going to use. If you're in a breaking process right now and you're like, Lord, what can I do? You're in a good place. When you're no longer trusting yourself, you're in a good place. God's about to use you because he wants all the glory. No glory to you. All glory to him. You're in a very, very good place. God was calling for absolute obedience in me. He was calling me to do what I had never done before, to go beyond my fears and to reach beyond what was normal for me. God wants to prepare you for his work. You're the vessel. What is hindering you from being used by God? Are you holding on to your comforts, routines, old ways of doing things, having your own way, hating change or changes? Are you clinging to your prejudices and fears? I don't do windows. Certain things you don't like, certain people you find objectionable, certain places you refuse to go. Are there areas that you still take pride in? Are there last vestiges of self-respect or self-restraint that make you feel just a little bit better than your other brothers and sisters in Christ or better than those people in the world? Are you saying not so, Lord, in any area of your life? Are there things you have felt God urging you to do and you have refused because of discomfort, sacrifice, prejudice, or pride? You will never be a part of the great work if you answer God's call with not so, Lord. Do you feel better that, do you feel like you know better for your life than God does, like Peter did? And so God had to take him back. Peter, let's go back and revisit those places where you thought you knew better than me. Remember when you thought you knew better about how to catch fish and you caught nothing? And I told you to launch out into the deep and let down your net and what happened? Peter, remember when you told me I shouldn't suffer? Peter, remember when you said you wouldn't deny me? Peter, let me tell you about the times when you grasped control of your life and you were in charge. Let's go back and remember what happened. And then let's see if you want to say not so, Lord, again. And I know in my own life, when I'm tempted to say not so, Lord, God reminds me of those times, all disastrous, when I took control. When I said, Lord, I think I know a little bit better. I know Cheryl better than you do. And he's like, oh, really? Do you know her down city and uprising? Do you know why you came upstairs right now? There was a reason. When I was downstairs, I thought, I need something upstairs. Yes, Cheryl, you came up here for your Bible. Thank you, Lord. You know, he knows us so much better than we know ourselves. He knows our weaknesses, our failures, our strengths. He knows us. Is there a place you're saying, not so, Lord? Is there a place you think, I know better than the Lord? No. Not so is a phrase of distrust, isn't it? It leaves you as Lord rather than Jesus as Lord. I've had many people say that there was a time in their life when Jesus was Lord of all, but he wasn't Lord of their life. And there are times where we can believe Jesus is Lord, 
But is he Lord in your life? Is he Lord of your heart? Are you saying, all right, Lord, not my will, but yours be done? God wants to do a mighty work. He wants to save a generation. God wants you to be part of this great, great work. The fields are ripe for harvest. It might mean coming to a prayer meeting. It might mean sitting through prayers that are very long-winded. It might mean sacrifice of your time. It might mean coming to church and driving at night when it is dark. It's going to mean discomfort. It's going to mean turning off the TV, but I love that program. It's going to mean praying on the phone. It's going to be uncomfortable. Are you ready to leave your prejudice and fears behind? Mortify your pride. I have a friend. I love her. She calls me up, and her first words are, I'm an idiot, no matter what. I'm like, oh, God, I'm an idiot, too. Let's have an idiot conversation. It just feels so good. I mean, everything's down. We could just be ourselves, idiot to idiot. It's so nice. Are you ready to obey Jesus with abandonment? If so, get ready. I think a vision is on its way. I think some men will be knocking at your door because God wants to work and he's going to prepare us and he's already preparing the fields for harvest. Look, they're white unto harvest even now, right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you wait for us, that you might be gracious. There's not a woman in this room that you don't want for your purposes, for your service. There's not a woman in this room that you don't have great plans for. But, Lord, you are waiting for us. You want to do a work in our day. Lord, I pray that you would help us with our comfort, with our areas of prejudice and fear. Lord, with our areas of pride. And with that fourth area, Lord, that I keep forgetting. (laughs) Because I'm just human, Lord. Oh, disobedience. No wonder I forgot it. Lord, we pray that you would work in these areas that we might be vessels of honor, fit for the master's use, filled with the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.